0: Everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 85 of InsureTech Insider. In today's show, we're going to be discussing the most interesting news in the insuretech an insurance scene from across the globe. As always, I am not alone, and today I am joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel?
1: I am very well, but very cold, but it's my God-given right to complain about the weather because I'm British. Irish. British.
0: Well, it's absolutely. We start every podcast by complaining about the weather because because we're British, and it's now a long-running trope, and our listeners would be disappointed <laughs> if we didn't give them a weather forecast from the previous week's Wednesday. So there we go. Minus seven tonight. Ugh. Minus seven. I mean, I'm just <laughs> going to get my own slight in here. The wind chill here was minus 11 on Sunday. I thought I was skiing in the Alps when I went for a walk. <laughs> Unbelievable. <sighs> we are also joined by some amazing guests today. Uh, first up, making a much welcome return, we have Freddie McNamara, CEO and founder of Cover. How are you doing today, Freddie? Are you somewhere warm? I I can see your background looks very tropical, but I I suspect perhaps you are not there right now.
2: I I did actually spend the last few weeks somewhere quite warm, but uh, I'm back in London now. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: We're very, very (laughs) jealous of that. Can you quickly give our listeners a recap of what Cover is and what Cover does?
2: Absolutely. I'm sure all of your listeners will be aware by now, and they should absolutely go and download our app. But Cover is an app that lets you buy very, very short periods of insurance insurance by the hour if you want to borrow a car and as of a couple of months ago uh, we sell you a subscription of insurance on your own vehicle and that will uh, update its pricing based on things like your behavior and other such things yeah so uh, go download cover now if you want to borrow a car
0: or you want great insurance i like it getting your plugs in early next up making his InsureTech insider debut we have callum rimmer founder and ceo of Bybits. how are you doing today callum very good thank you thanks for having me What's your weather like? What's the weather situation? Uh,
3: It's sunny. I'm in West London, so it's very cold, but very pleasant and
1: bright out the window.
0: What makes a change from the snow? I I will say,
1: Sarah, we're all sat here in jumpers and Callum seems to be in a (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. Yeah, it's very...
3: I'm in the attic, so all the heat goes up into the attic. The rest of the house is freezing, so my wife and child are (laughs) enjoying the Arctic conditions downstairs.
0: (laughs) He's probably got double glazing. I don't even have double glazing. I mean... Goodness me. <laughs> Can you give our listeners a quick overview of Bybit please, Callum?
3: Yes, yeah, so James Black and I set up a company called Buy Miles about four years ago. And Buy Miles is a pay-by-mile insurance proposition. And we've grown quite a lot over the last four years. But about a year ago, we split our company up to three separate companies. One was the insurance company that keeps doing what we do now, a B2C proposition. We also created a payments company that allowed us to get open bank and regulation, which means we've created some stuff in that space. And finally, we created a tech company. And the tech company is what's become Bybits. And Bybits is basically taking the technology that we've built for the insurance company and the payments company, and it's externalizing it to other insurers and insurtechs to just help them create innovative products. Um, We only launched at the end of January, so we're still pretty new.
0: Brilliant. Well, very exciting. We look forward to hearing more from how you get on as the business develops. But for now, thank you both for joining us, and let's get on with the show. So the first story today is that COVID claims lead to Beasley profit plunge. The insurer posted a disappointing pre-tax loss of $50.4 million last year compared to a profit of $267 million in 2019. In total, Beasley's booked first-party losses from COVID amounted to $340 million so far, with further losses expected this year. However, written gross premiums rose by 19%, fueled by rate rises across most of the company's division, while investment income also increased. Chairman David Roberts said that the pandemic had tested the industry and its role in protecting society against risk and unforeseen events. He added that it demonstrated the need for collaboration across the industry and government to deliver solutions that protect populations from threats, such as pandemics, terrorism and climate change, which we've discussed quite extensively on this show previously. The company is positive about the year to come, and the company apparently has capital strength to support growth plans and mitigate the post-pandemic recession. Losses were not as bad as they had predicted they could have been. So I think from what I understand, Beasley's quite early on to report this year in results. We haven't heard that much from the other big insurers. Do we think that we're going to be hearing a similar story as, as results season continues or has anybody else reported and, and, and has a contrasting story that anybody's seen? What do we think?
2: Oh, well, from the um, motor insurance perspective, I think both Cover and By Miles have been pretty hot on what we see is happening in the motor insurance space, which is pretty isolated from what's going on in the rest of the insurance market. The ratio insurance have made an enormous amount of money last year. And we're both campaigning to try and get them to give a little bit of that back to their customers. We managed to get Admiral to give 20 pounds back to each of their customers for the time people weren't driving during lockdown, which we thought was a bit measly. But uh, I, I think the, uh, the supernormal profit of the motor insurance industry is well over a billion pounds, if not into sort of two billion pounds for last year, because they were charging normal annual premiums for people to sit at home and not drive their cars. And we thought that was pretty unfair. Uh, so we're still pushing pretty hard to try and get them to give some of that back. But obviously, in the rest of the market, you've had the big legal challenge against the insurers who weren't paying out on their business interruption insurance, which is a slightly, slightly different fish. And I think should be treated separately to the motor insurance.
0: Yes, I think it very much does depend on which lines you play in. I think it's, it's going to be interesting, particularly. I think the big guys will be interesting to see. You'll be able to see where where they are stronger and weaker, and and, and you know particularly how well they've been or protected against COVID or otherwise. Nigel, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, no. So I, so
1: I have to say, you and know, I've discussed this quite a lot. The US have definitely led the way. They they were. Other than San Francisco, I think it was, where the regulator told you you had to, everyone else jumped into it and gave money back. was actually gave back £25 per policy they had, which is still £190 million back into consumers' pockets. Um, LV was the other one in the UK that did stuff. But outside that, no one else, from what we see or, or know. Getting back to the article, though, the losses, I mean, look, I think, I think Beasley's done, done well here. Mm. I think you're going to see this everywhere, to be honest, Sarah and, and folks. I think we're going to see people using what we have to do to clean up some of the claims that have gone on. We've paid out a fortune. Lloyds of London expects to pay out something like $5 billion early on, but that's gone up again. They've blown past those estimates. We're going to see this as the results keep coming out. I'm not so worried about the results. I'm more worried about what it does to the market going forward, i.e. Mm. if it's now more expensive to buy insurance and the prices have hardened, what does that actually do to things going forward for people who want to acquire insurance? Does price go up? Or do we end up with more people actually going, I can't afford it, I'm not going to buy it at all?
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we've, we've kind of talked about this a bit as well. But if, if the companies are trying to recoup their losses and, and the, you know, the way they do that is put prices up across the board as opposed to put prices up where it is relevant to put prices up, You know, particularly um, we've talked about travel in that space as well, does it, does it have a negative in, impact? Although I suppose the fact that Beasley have said that this wasn't as bad as they'd expected is, is a slightly positive sign. I think we'll have to wait and see what comes out from the other big players. Callum, what are your thoughts on this? I
3: think insurance in general over the pandemic, particularly compared to other sectors, has done pretty well. And I agree with Freddie's points about particularly motor in that space. Beasley's results is a 50 million loss and 3.5 billion in revenues. They haven't done that bad, really. And historically, I think insurance reacts quite well to massive economic impacts. So the financial crisis in 2008, it bounced back quite quickly afterwards. And I think personally, it will bounce back quite well again after this pandemic from an economic point of view. The big difference is back in 2008, it was a purely economic impact. This time around, it's an economic impact on top of consumer behavior changing. People are working different. They're going to be traveling from A to B differently. They communicate and socialize differently. Mm-hmm. And I think these impacts on how people are going to behave going forward potentially are going to create a bigger disruption for insurance and what insurance has to react to than just recovering from losses they've made over this year.
0: I think that's a very good point actually because we've talked about this um, in the broader financial services industry across 11FS that particularly, for example, the banks had to move much quicker than they were planning to to deliver digital services because they had no other way of delivering their their products and services to customers. And that was kind of literally down to can you get a loan? You know, Well, yeah, we're going to have to make a Digital process for this because nobody can come to the bank I wonder if you know this will be another driving force for the, the insurance industry you know things have changed you're going to have to move quicker now guys if you hang around you will be left behind because your hands have been forced by, by circumstances
1: yeah ultimately insurance companies exist to pay out claims so we're used to dealing with natural catastrophe I'm, I'm looking at Freddie's wind swept background at the moment you know we, we, we're storm we're flood we're all those sorts of good things I wonder if the cost and the claims cost here specifically has gone up because of, back to Callum's point, our cost base of getting here and getting people to different locations or whatever else has driven much of the extra capital expense at some point. Um, I actually talk in this year's predictions about something called digital indigestion. <laughs> and I, I, I know it sounds a bit buzzword.
0: Is this because you've been talking about cake for so long, you've now got indigestion? <laughs>
1: I had not made that link, but very good. I like that, actually. But, but actually, this is a point that says we spent so much time and energy in 2020 rushing to get people still working. And we did really well to do that across banking and financial services and, and everything else. Now, I think lots of companies are going to look back and go, oh, hell, what happened? How do we get people back into the right cadence, routine, back to work safely through 2021 or whatever that new hybrid might look like? And I think there'll be a general pause in this digitization or digitalization where they deal with all the fixes and things they put in place to make 2020 actually just keep ticking on.
0: Mm. Well, I guess we'll have to we'll have to wait and see on that one. The the last point
2: is that the markets have done extremely well and half of what insurance companies do is invest premiums to pay them out later. And so uh, they will have had a significant offset. But I think it's the second order effects that we're starting to see the effects of now. For example, Directors and officers' insurance is increasing in price rapidly. It's basically doubled in price because everyone's getting sued for their reaction during the pandemic. And that's going to stop seasoned directors being able to go and work for small businesses. And the ripples from this are going to go for a long, long time before everything kind of smooths out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true across the board. I'm going to move us on to our next story, which is hopefully good news. I suppose it's good news. So Oscar Health has filed for an IPO while Hippo is in talks to do the same. I do love when I get an article that has this kind of names in it. It's like Oscar and Hippo, you know. Sound like somebody's Labradors. So Oscar is the health insurance startup backed by Google parent Alphabet, which has filed for an IPO. I think we all know about Oscar. They're one of the most well-funded uh, insuretechs out there. The telemedicine market has boomed during the pandemic, unsurprisingly, and more companies are looking to expand their scale and offerings as healthcare moves into the virtual realm. So Oscar's had, I suppose, you know without being crude, a good pandemic. Meanwhile, Hippo, which is an insurtech that serves homeowners, is in talks to go public through a merger with a special purpose acquisition company, or a SPAC, which is uh, called Reinvent Technology Partners. So the transaction would value the combined entity at more than $5 billion. The talks are currently private, and terms could change or may fall apart, it says here. I think that's come out of directly out of the insurance journal that the publication so there's a few things we can talk about here. I think there's obviously the trend that we're seeing for insuretech, but also fintechs more broadly going public at the moment. We've seen quite a few, particularly if you want more insight on those over on our sister show, FinTech Insiders. There's the SPAC trend as well. You know, that's another thing that we're seeing quite a bit more of, which goes hand in hand with the general fintech and insure tech IPO boom. So what are people's thoughts on this? Is is it a trend that's going to continue through this year, or are uh, these two special outliers? you know what what are the thoughts on on sort of i suppose these these events
1: i'll jump in and go first i'm excited by i think it's validation of the market right so you mentioned the oscar funding and i laugh as you say oscar that's actually it's my son's name he's in a great pandemic he's at home cuddled up and (laughs) (laughs)
0: sorry nigel (laughs) i
1: usually call him jack russell to be fair rather than labrador he's a bit more nimble he's a bit smaller but he gets called the dog most of the time I think it's great because it's validation, and we've seen what happened with Lemonade, and we can talk about valuation versus losses. The same in Oscar's perspective with their loss last year. You know, I think it was like four hundred million loss last year from what, I, if, I, if I read it correctly. I, I'm intrigued though. Uh, one of the things that's got me excited here is actually they're backed by Alphabet, right, Google's parent company. And if you think about what Alphabet are up to at the moment, from what I've seen anyway. They announced something last week around phones being able to do more around telehealth, to your point on telehealth. So they're obviously seeing this is a huge sector. There's other startups in Israel like Binah doing the same thing. They did a partnership with Swiss Re on stop-loss insurance with Verily a few months back, probably about six months ago. So there seems to be a really strong push from them into, actually, how do we go now and get to the broader market? We have all these tools and capabilities in our kit bag. So again, back to predictions, but I think health is a really strong area. Back to what you said, I mean, everyone's stared at mortality and health in the eyes for the last 12 months. And we've seen lots of things go on in this space and lots of new startups in the life space as well. So I'm quite excited by both of these.
0: Would you have thought Oscar would have IPO'd or or, or done something before now? I just wonder about the size it's got to before it's made the decision to do this, because it is absolutely huge in terms of, of, you know, money that's gone into it.
2: It feels a little bit like the uh, ICO craze a few years ago. (laughs) Okay. There was a lot of money on the table, a lot of people who are looking to invest and people launch their ICOs. And now it's the, the turn of the IPO as trillions of dollars is created out of nowhere. And there's a rush to try and find some sort of return that is going to protect against inflation, like historic low interest rates. There's there's nothing in the, in the rest of the market. And so Taking a bit of risk in a growth company looks like a better move now. And there's just so much cash available to go into these companies that everyone's just heading for the doors. I wonder how this plays out, though. Yeah, from
3: an IPO point of view, people seem to uh, people ensure techs seem to be accelerating to get there a bit quicker than potentially I anticipated. And maybe the market anticipated and the use of SPACs to speed up that process. So, taking something that normally a four year cycle to a three month cycle uh, to get there a bit quicker. I think. In techs like Metro Mile and HIPPO in particular using these vehicles to get there, I think they're trying to catch the wave that Root and lemonade have created where there's a lot of investor confidence in tech vehicles. From my point of view, there's a bit of a question that rushing that quick to get to IPO fits in with what your medium and long term aims are for your business. And whilst there may be returns and it may be very successful to get there that quick. And now if it's not done properly, then it, it could make it unsustainable going forward, which would affect potentially business like Freddie and mine. So
2: Just because the voting machine of the market is slightly broken right now doesn't mean the long term weighing machine isn't going to work. And just like the GameStop shares that weren't worth $400 each, it might be the case that over a medium term period, if the prices come down, the bubble is let out of the system, then you can actually find it difficult to run the business.
0: I mean, I think we we saw that with the early fintechs, particularly the peer-to-peer lenders went public, and they went up and then very, very quickly down. And that's the bottom dropped out of that very quickly. Now, there's a lot you know, it would probably be unfair to draw direct comparisons because a lot of their business models didn't necessarily stand up to scrutiny over time. But just to, to Freddie's point, we have seen this kind of excitement of one after another after another of of, of similar businesses. You know, particularly in the in the fintech and in wider insurtech space. You know, is, is newer, more novel, happened before. And it hasn't necessarily ended brilliantly for those businesses. So it will be interesting to see, particularly what happens to you know, like of Lemonade and Root that have gone first. Nigel, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah,
1: I mean, just on Freddie's point about game, I mean. It was a fascinating ringside seat, I think, on the internet, watching this thing happen in front of us that I knew nothing or understood anything about, listening to a whole bunch of podcasts, whether it's Scott Galloway or Mark Cuban talking about it. I mean, Scott had a really good phrase where he turned around and said, at some point, the fundamentals of the organization will catch up with this whole thing, which is almost to your point, you know, if you were a traditional insurer, are these fundamentals still correct as they're playing out if you compare them to a... a long-established 300-year-old insurer or or whatever else it may be. That said, the other thing, in listening to um, Daniel Schreiber talk recently, was if you look back to some of the bigger tech companies, their time between inception and IPO was probably about the same. It was about four years. So I think Google, I need to double-check it, but I think Google was about four years as well. And if that's the case, actually, maybe the excitement around FinTech and insurtech over the last couple of years has stopped us going public quicker than we should have done. So we should actually, maybe they are right to do it.
0: I think it's one that's going to be a time will tell, because I, I think, as you say, we, this is the first time we've sort of got companies that like this with these business models based on these principles getting to this size and going public. Like, there's not that much history, I suppose. So, you know, particularly in the insurance space, um, I suppose particularly, you know, Freddie and Callum will be watching and waiting to see what happens because, you know, obviously it will very much impact the, the decision of, um, of you know, smaller insurtechs as they grow and, and, and where they want to direct their businesses. I wonder if one thing I'd like to know is that we've seen an awful lot of it in the US, obviously, and, and the insurtechs there are a lot bigger. Do we think we're going to see more activity in the European markets or even the European insurtechs?
2: The advantage of these SPAC IPAs is that you can go public with a lot Less due diligence than uh, than you might be able to do otherwise, and it's not as simple to do that uh, in European markets because uh, it doesn't doesn't kind of work in the same way. So I don't know if we'll see a direct translation. Also, the ecosystem is probably four years, maybe behind where things are in the US. Metro Mile was obviously founded at the beginning of last decade and uh, at Lemonade just after. So I think I think we'll be, uh, we'll be seeing it in a couple of
1: years. But that's a really interesting thing culturally. Yeah, cu- culturally, is that a European versus US thing? I mean, are we just too polite and British or too European and sitting back and watching things to go? And actually, if we just went, are we going to see cover go public in the next two years and go hell for leather and give it a go?
3: I think UK markets and the American markets, we'd have, we or British European countries have to list on their own exchanges and there just isn't quite the, the capital available there to make as big a splash. So I think that's probably why it's done less often here. I mean, it could be down to cultural and expectations of how we do business. I do think from an IPO point of view, Businesses that do perform well reflect very well on businesses like ours when we go to raise. It means we can raise easier and people will give us better valuations for that. IPAs that go wrong, um, it then there's an exit that disappears. And that means people are less likely to give you money at the valuations that you want. So, it has an impact on young businesses, young tech businesses, when IPOs don't play out in such a way that has a long-term benefit, basically.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll watch and wait and see on that, as we do so often. But for now, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back very soon. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash getapulsedemo. Welcome back, and uh, over to you for the first story, Nigel.
1: Fantastic. So first off, and actually a continuation from the last one, is ex-Uber staffer Ryan Graves is to invest $50 million in Metromile. Now, for those that don't know, Metromile, a San Francisco-based car insurance startup, has announced that Ryan tends to make a $50 million investment in the company personally and through his investment firm, Saltwater. Now, if you do a bit of Googling on Ryan Graves, as I have done, It's not Ryan Graves, the ice hockey player. It's Ryan Graves, the ex-Uber executive. He was formerly SVP for global operations, having originally been Uber's first employee. And prior to that, he did a stint as CEO as well. Graves, as part of this, will join Metromile's board of directors following the business combination's close and joining Mark Cuban, another favorite of mine, and other institutional investors to support Metromile's growth plans. Now, one of my mega complaints always is... We never raise enough money to go further, faster, and with this, this is a this is a true slam dunk. It feels like, in terms of at least sheer scale and size, wh- what do we think, folks? Is this the is this good, bad, indifferent? Sh- should should we be? Where do they even go with fifty million dollars? Quite a decent sized investment, right? I think it's really exciting. Really, really exciting on
3: both sides of the table. So I think Graves getting in before they IPO'd was good for him. And I also think from MetroMiles' point of view, having someone come in who has experience of scaling massive companies very quickly, internationally is something that they really haven't demonstrated themselves. I mean, they've been going quite a while now. They're in eight US states. They just haven't expanded very, very quickly. And I think this impetus that Graves could bring in could make a massive difference to what Metromile is and what it could be. Yeah, I think it's exciting.
0: I completely agree. I think if anybody knows how to scale a, a company related to cars, it's probably somebody who's had some experience Uber. But on a serious note, I think um, I completely agree with Callum. I think the money will be one benefit, but I think the experience he has and having been you know, at Uber all the way through. I really enjoyed that Nigel said that prior to being Uber's first employee, he was Uber's first CEO. And I quite like that if that wasn't the way around, it went. Um, But the point being that he was there all the way through Uber's journey. So he exactly to a point, he knows how it goes. And, you know, it is his own money. But then, you know, and then there's big things being made about that. But, you know, salt water is is almost a vehicle for the gazillions he's made from Uber over the years as well. But I think him coming out and saying it, you know, that this is personally important to him, it means a lot. So um, I, I think it's a very, very good thing.
2: I'm slightly sceptical, actually. I feel like he's coming in at a late stage with $50 million just before the IPO. He's going to get a nice bump on the IPO. And he's sitting on the board. Well, like, He's not going to have a huge amount of impact on the board. If he was coming in as a CEO, then yeah, sure, that would be interesting for me. But yeah, he's going to have you know, four chances a year at quarterly board meetings and maybe a call every other month. He's going to be able to give a little bit of context, but I don't think it's going to be transformational.
0: I think presumably having him on the board will help with the IPO as well.
2: Yeah
3: metromile have raised a lot like a hell of a lot um 400 odd million i think so i mean this is 50 million on top of that i I agree with Freddie's point he's probably not going to be hands-on but i just think they need that pressure they need someone saying look you should be doing more and better with this money you should be expanding and moving quicker and they need to to feel that pressure and to be surrounded by the experience to just make them make the step onto what Obviously, I think their business model is brilliant because basically it's what we do in the UK. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you would say that.
3: Yeah, I really do not think they've at all capitalized on their opportunity. And and motor insurance and particularly usage-based insurance in the way Metromile do it sit in the middle of a number of driving factors any of which can make a business incredibly successful. And in the case of insurance, you've got the changes in consumer behavior, environmental concerns, automotive changes, mobility changes, you've got governmental and regulatory changes that are happening and motor insurance and usage-based insurance sort of touch all these things and it's getting your claws into a couple of them can create the momentum that makes you a massive like world-dominating business. And Metro Miles should have been further along the path than they are at the moment. Yeah, I think
2: they've been blown out of the water by route basically. Yeah. And I think what Root have done really, really well in the States has been the regulatory platform that they've built. The ability to go to that many States that quickly and roll out has been incredible. And that's obviously what Uber managed to do pretty well. They, they managed to build an Uber for every single market. And I think that's probably what the insight that this chap's going to bring to Metro Mile and help them drive forwards and really get to all 50 States and, and potentially beyond.
1: Didn't Uber's perspective then And I might be speaking out at of turn, but wasn't Uber's approach? Let's just just turn up and sort out the regulation afterwards. Yeah. Whereas insurers can't really do that.
0: I think there was a certain amount of that with Uber. I think there's a few businesses that have done that. I wouldn't necessarily use Uber as the best model for regulatory compliance or approaches to regulatory compliance. You know, nationally within the US or or internationally.
2: <laughs> but they but they did end up sorting out the compliance, and yet they were forced to be able to isolate each different version. Of of Uber for each different market. And I think that's what Root have done extremely well.
1: You mentioned one other point, Freddie, and I'd love to discuss this with you both, given your board, and actually, you know, one of the comments on the notes here talks about celebrity investors or celebrity boards. What is the role of a board? Or you talked about, you know, four calls E or four meters here in a bunch of calls. Now, you, you famously have a, a very famous and very well-respected industry individual on the board how involved is a board in the insure tech industry today in terms of shaping and helping you get set up for scale going forward well it's
2: i think it's up to the executive team to set the business up for scale but it's up to the board to help get things out of the way and help identify problems that we might be running into that we haven't necessarily spotted they're kind of watching watching our backs and just general channel for advice about anything anything and everything. But it's really up to the executive team to bring the strategy to the board and for them to interrogate it rather than for them to drive the strategy. They should, they should be a sounding board rather than something that tries to push the business forwards. They're not close enough to the information and they're not close enough to the customer to actually say, you should do this or that. They should be there to be a few gray hairs who've done it before who can say, have you thought about the problem in this way? Have you considered this risk? We'd like to understand more about this, but definitely not sort of pushing you in any direction. Otherwise, you end up in trouble.
1: It's the difference between operational oversight and almost board oversight, because one's day-to-day and one's almost medium to long-term, if not long-term direction. What about you, Callum? Have you got, uh, from your board's perspective or your advisory board perspective, have you you got a different view? No,
3: it's very similar to Freddie's. We drive what we think the business should be doing. We communicate our vision in the near term, medium term and the long term. And uh, we look for advice and contacts where we can from our board. Our board are incentivized to help make us successful. And generally they've got involved with you because they trust your vision and trust your ability to execute it.
1: And and as you've split between Buy Miles and Buy Bits, is that now one singular board or is that two individual boards?
3: No, so it's a single board. So James and I both sit on the board of what is the parent umbrella company. And the strategy of the group as a whole is what we
1: discuss at board level. Fantastic. Well, look, with that note, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which is all about partnerships. And it felt like this week was a week of announcement after announcement of new partnerships coming out. So first up, we had Trove partnering with UFO Drive. I don't know if that's UFO Drive or UFO Drive. UFO. The latter would be quite interesting. (laughs) Neptune floods with Arcadian managers and Haggerty with uh, Agiro. Now each of these has obviously individual merits about what they're trying to do to extend the existing propositions. UFO drive. What, what, have I got this right? Is it UFO drive or UFO drive?
2: So I, I actually used them on my birthday. I rented a Tesla for the day. It was fantastic. Did it work? I, well, I rang up the CEO to say there was a dent in my car. Actually, I complained, and the CEO rang me and he said, "I've already got your number in my phone." <laughs> Why is this? And he'd look back and he'd he'd spoken to us a few years ago about trying to help them out with their insurance, for their fleet. But it was a fantastic service. It's a completely touchless car rental service. I think it's just Teslas and you just go to a car park, pick up a Tesla, open it and off you go and you, you deliver it back and you never see anybody and it's uh, it's, com- it's completely digital. It's a fantastic service, apart from the dent in my car
1: but they sorted that out. I can make loads of jokes about the Tesla being abducted <laughs> by UFO, but I will
0: not do it. That's what my brain was going. I was just racking through the puns and I decided, no, I would, I would, I would <laughs> hold off. I think the point, just the point of your serious point about partnerships, I think the... Um, I think we talked about this before, Nigel, but the need for partnerships within SureTechs to get kind of distribution and scale is 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 quite quite well understood. And I think certainly from Trove's perspective, if you look at the way that Trove started and the way that it's sort of its business has changed and evolved, then partnerships are now are now key and core to its ability to get its proposition out there and, and to work. So I I think this is a trend that's not going anywhere. I think it's just interesting to see, particularly with Trove and and UFO Drive or UFO Drive or whatever we're calling them, to see two relatively new companies getting together and holding hands. And I, I wonder if it's a lot easier for companies that are both new and both have the same or similar experiences of, of of starting up and getting going. And perhaps you'd hope, you know, similarly advanced technology, backends, processes, culture, all that jazz, you know, if it's easier for them, which I assume it is, but how much more benefit you'd have if they'd gone with a bigger partner that was more established and, and had a more well-known brand. I don't know. I think it's uh, interesting to see who they pick as partners, not interesting that they are partnering, if that makes sense.
1: I'd agree. Callum, is this a, is this a path? I mean, this is really interesting if you take the bit story, of which I still have an article about three quarters now written that I need to get out somewhere at some point. Is this a direction of travel that you see more and more partners like yourselves, like Trove now doing to enable insurance to be almost embedded and visible into the overall propositions, you know, to make Freddie's life really easy, dense excluded? Uh, yeah. It's-
3: <sighs> How can I put this without trying to sound overly altruistic? Really, what you want to do is create tools that allow insurers to innovate. And if they can innovate, they can create better customer propositions, things that consumers actually want. And creating partnership and sharing technology or sharing distribution channels helps share what is innovation. And innovation is essential in insurance. Insurance, if it has one big criticism, from me, it's just it does not innovate or change quick enough. And I think leveraging partnerships... From a technology point of view or from a distribution point of view, can help be the thin end of the wedge that drives in and forces the bigger
1: insurers to adapt and change, basically. but the the other thing to both of you, if you follow this story through about your point about making life easier, are you not? this is a debate we always end up having. Are you not taking yourself one step further away from the insurer? because Freddie, other than speaking to the CEO, had absolutely no interaction and no desire to interact, I'm assuming with the insurance company of that. It was just, all done through UFO
2: drive, yeah, I wasn't aware of who was actually underwriting the policy. Do you care? Not really It's their asset
0: <laughs> yeah. I suppose you don't care if the issue is solved. like I think that's the point, isn't it? you don't you don't care until you can't get the issue solved
2: with a, with a motor insurance policy, I, I care about the third party liability and a medical cover and that's an RTA policy. So you have to include that with any insurance policy. So as long as the car is insured, I don't really care because I mean, I'm gonna lose my deposit if I crash it potentially, but that's about it. like, I don't have any recourse beyond that.
1: Well, it's a perfect segue to the second one. And actually, Callum, you touched on this as well about making life easier and innovating. Neptune Flood, an AI driven flood insurance company is partnered with Arcadian managers to offer flood insurance coverage via their network of independent agents and homeowners through Louisiana, I, I look at this and go, it's just a better way of going rate quote bind. It can't be anything more complicated. And, I, and I'm sitting here going, in the European market, this is table stakes. You almost have to do this. And I don't know, in reading this, if the US market is further behind and playing catch up quickly, or there's something fundamentally different here. But Carol, this is your point. You've got to make it life easy to engage, in, and in their instance here, quote and buy property coverage within minutes. That's normal these
3: days, right? Well, yeah, it feels normal to us. Shortex or people coming in from a startup environment, it just feels like you should be making it. I mean, this is a low-hanging fruit. You should just be doing this stuff. And if you need to partner up um, to make it happen, then fine, because at least you're doing it. But there's a lot of things in insurance. That if you speak to people outside insurance about how it works and the pace that things happen, it just feels ludicrous. People just can't comprehend it could be that technologically backward and getting a quick quote just seems like an obvious thing that should be happening and should be done. And to be honest, I haven't got a good answer to this one other than bashing insurance a little bit.
1: For me at least, and I might be biased, but for me at least, it does feel like the maturity of the European market is on an absolute tear. And back to our previous stories, we haven't really taken up the opportunity on the IPOs like the US market has, but they're able to get there faster with less capability. It just doesn't doesn't seem to weigh itself up properly. The last one as well is something I feel like we've been doing for years. And Haggerty is probably one of my favorite driver's clubs. I love Haggerty Insurance. I love the fact they're classic cars and they talk to customers 82 times a year. But they're partnered with a company called Aguero for its Roadside Assistance Programme. Now, again, I don't know of a single insurance policy in the UK that I've looked at over the last 20-odd years that's not had the opportunity to put roadside into there by default or at least as an option. Which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, I'm assuming there's similar options inside both biomars and, and cover. We don't have roadside assistance yet. <laughs> <Or not>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the silence tells a lot there.
1: So this is a really cool partnership, yeah. Freddie. You should consider roadside assistance.
2: There's a lot of things to consider, but as a startup, you have to be focused on what the actual core good customer need is, and you've got to go and solve that first before you go and in tons of other stuff.
0: Can I just say that I use Drover and we, we can't use cover on Drover, Freddie, so please don't shout at me. We have the insurance that comes with Drover, but they have roadside assistance, but I still have to call a phone. There's no, you know, I can't do it digitally. There's no interaction. And I think the point about this partnership is that you just do it from your phone. It's like embedded in, you know, it's a web platform. It's an online platform. You just go online and say, this is a problem. This is where I am you know, GPS here, come and pick me up. Even with Drover, I still have to get on the phone and say, well, I'm somewhere on the A413 between, you know, X and Y, you know, this is the nearest road sign I can see. So I think the partnership, you know, with Wirtat assistance may be fair, Nigel, but I don't necessarily think that the technology is integrated yet, even if you... You know, even if you do have all the, the fantastic technology with the car rental app or the car insurance app or you know whatever it is you're using, I don't think the roadside assistance is necessarily there to match it yet. I don't I've never used the AA app, so I've no idea if that's just as good.
1: I'll leave you on this one. I, I read a wonderful story on the news earlier about a fire that went off and the fire brigade used what three words. a way to find the property really, really quickly, which I now believe is embedded by default into things like Mercedes and everything else going forward. So I do see partnerships like that where you're leveraging technology and the motor manufacturer and services like Aguero or AA or whoever to actually make life much easier for people. Look, that wraps up the partnership stories. Sarah, back to you for one of our favourites.
0: Well, you say favourites. So this is the revisit of Elon Musk, the insurance man. So back in 2019, Tesla announced that it was going to be offering drivers Tesla insurance directly through the Tesla company. Apparently, Tesla is now moving some manufacturing operations to Austin. Apparently, that's due to Elon Musk wanting to, to relocate there himself. I wouldn't put it past him. So that means that Tesla is now going to be offering car insurance in that state as well. The insurance program will be distributed through the Tesla Insurance Services of Texas Inc., an MGA formerly known as Samsung General Agency. Tesla does currently offer insurance coverage for Tesla vehicles, but only in California. So, Texas would be, you know, the second state in which it's available. On its website, Tesla says that its product is competitively priced and designed to provide Tesla vehicle owners with up to 20% lower rates, and in some cases, as much as 30%. In addition to basic and other enhanced coverage offerings, an autonomous vehicle protection package is available. So I think this is a little bit of a different story because we've talked about Elon Musk, the insurance man previously, when Elon Musk decided he was basically going to insure himself. I think that's rather different to (laughs) Tesla, the company finding a way to offer Tesla customers insurance directly from the car brand itself, which I think we've generally agreed is, is not such a bad idea. You know, personal views on Elon Musk aside, please, gentlemen, for the purposes of today. Is this something we're going to be seeing a lot more of? Insurance coming out of you know, at car brands and the point being it being cheaper, I suppose, is the important point because we have seen, you know, car manufacturers offer insurance for quite a while. And I think the point perhaps being that, you know, is there an actually advantage that Tesla says it has when it says that because of all the technology within the car, it's much better equipped to underwrite insurance than perhaps, you know, Ford or BMW
2: or whoever else. There's one key advantage and that is Tesla manufactures all the bits of Tesla and they won't charge a premium to their own insurance company. So it will be cheaper for Tesla to insure. Everybody else, when they buy a third-party insurance policy and they crash a Tesla, that insurance company has to go back to Tesla and buy a really expensive bumper and then get it installed by Tesla. Whereas the Tesla insurance company is not going to have to pay that extra margin. It's just going to pay whatever the cost was, which is obviously significantly less. So they can charge less for insurance. It's it's quite clever. The key issue for all of these electric vehicles is that the vehicle manufacturer does all of – there's no third-party ecosystem. And so there's no competition there, which means they're all very expensive and it takes ages to get replacement.
0: So the advantage would be if BMW, which has quite a large range of electric vehicles, they could do the same thing and it would be cheaper for them as well.
2: So lots of people create and sell third party parts of BMWs, but nobody does that for Tesla because Tesla just controls the whole stack. So that's that's why.
3: I was just gonna say I think it's interesting that Tesla are doing this and I think other OEMs potentially could come in and start making their own direct insurance offering. And I think it's less about being able to turn insurance into a money-making part of their business. It's more down to it not styming their ability to innovate. With the electrification of cars, the second most expensive thing in the lifetime of vehicles is going to be the insurance on it. It used to be the fuel. Now it's going to be insurance. So that becomes more of a factor in your purchasing decision choice. And if you're introducing features into your car, semi-autonomous, autonomous driving modes, These features will make insurers inherently scared. They will add a premium to that. There'll be more risk associated that they don't know how to price for, which will make the cost of ownership of certain vehicles more expensive. So it's pragmatic for a car manufacturer to create insurance propositions that means they can still keep selling vehicles. That works in the short term. There's long-term considerations, which are fundamentally, insurance is a difficult thing to get right. You have to balance your growth against your performance of your book. And if you put too much effort into growing quickly and pricing very keenly, then you're going to end up basically creating a lopsided book that is difficult. You're going to drag it around. It's going to be an albatross for you. Also, there's a regulatory concerns. In America, particularly, you have to get regulated in each state. You have to file rate changes. And I wonder whether Elon and Tesla in general have got the the persistence and the attention span to just keep doing that in the long term. I can see short-term wins to help sell vehicles. I just can't see it being a long-term play for OEM.
0: Interesting. And I guess maybe that ties into the fact that they've gone to the two states where Elon Musk lives to start with. Maybe that's, you know, it's literally a kind of, this is where we want to play. Nigel?
1: I'm intrigued by, Freddie, your comment and actually kind of yours too around the supply chain or the repairer network. Because I've been looking at this for quite a while in, in different guises, and Actually, you know, your point about the parts and charging the parts out of premium, I, mean, I, I expect at some point that might become a regulator issue if you're creating an uncompetitive environment by charging different prices out to different parts of the network. How, how quickly that comes in is, is one thing. But the other point you picked up on, actually, was the time it takes to get parts from Tesla or other manufacturer of electric vehicle that are unique to that vehicle that don't exist en masse in the OEM market. And as a net result, that absolutely kills credit hire. So all of a sudden you've pushed up the, Hey, I've crashed my model S. I need a, a, a loan car and B, I'm up prepared to take a smaller micro car. I want a fancy car that's available, which costs a fortune per day. And all of a sudden, if you've got, you know, a rental car at a extortionate rate to the insurer, depending who's paying for it, it always goes back into the system somewhere, but that ultimately pushes the price up for everyone. There is a fundamental issue in the repair network. One of the things they did announce recently was the price of the car or the service network would now also include uh, collision support. So I think there's loads of things happening inside the walled garden that is Tesla around this whole thing of if you dent it, crash it, it needs repairing, we've got the guys and girls that go, go out to your vehicle on the road, but actually when it comes back into the shop, we'll fix lots of things at the same time. So I do think because they own that walled garden, they've got better control over it. I think the other reason they got into this was they were really annoyed with the broader market charging higher prices, when in theory, these cars should be safer.
0: I think that's your point, Nigel, and we'll leave it there.
1: Rant over. <laughs>
0: Um, I think, no, I think your points are fair. We I mean, are just running out of time. So um, I do see your point, Nigel, this this kind of wall garden, you know, this almost becomes a monopoly and, and, and will regulators take an adverse look at that? I think also it depends on, it'd be interesting to see, I know Tesla does do insurance for its UK cars. I don't know if it does it outside of the UK and I don't know whether it does those with partners or not. So that's something else to look for. There are certainly an awful lot of Teslas around my area, I can tell you that much, Okay, well, that wraps up the news for today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a Twitter or a website or LinkedIn that you'd like to share with us? Freddie, why don't you go first? You can
2: download Cover at www.cover.com, which is spelled C-U-V-V-A. And if you're desperate to follow me on Twitter, it's underscore Freddie Mac with a Y.
0: Well, if they had followed you on Twitter, they would have been able to join in the glee that was National Car Insurance Day last week, which provoked a lot of discussion about cars too, I believe. So exciting. Callum, how about you?
3: So the website's buybits.co.uk and it's got the social media profiles on there. Perfect.
0: Thank you. And Nigel.
1: I actually said something positive about e-scooters this week on Twitter. Can you believe it? So on Twitter, at Nigel Walsh. I
0: was going to say, would you like to tell people where they can find that positive comment? And you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much to all of my guests today. As always, you can find the show on Twitter, at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and do leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.